Lord, we're so grateful as we approach you tonight, as we approach your sacred word, to see a glimpse of who you are, to see a glimpse of who we are, reflected in this story, God. Lord, there's no doubt as we think about this moment that it's a a high point for Scripture. It's a high point for Genesis. And in it we see you, what reconciliation is, what it cost, what it cost you to bear that weight. We're so grateful that you are so providential, so caring, that you didn't just do the work of restoring our relationship with you, but you even restored our relationship with each other. Humans weren't left to wallow in their misery amongst one another while being in perfect relationship with you again. That you've healed even the dynamics that seem so personal, so intimate, so at times impossible. That there's no way this relationship could be made right. There's no way that there could be any sense of restoration. And yet in those situations at which you're work, you're at work, Lord, your, your spirit is moving. And Lord, we recognize especially amongst other Christians that we have a unique obligation to, to forgive and repent and to be changed because of what you've done for us. To be people who reconcile with one another, Lord. We think about what you say in in the Gospels about the idea that we are not meant to come to you without having first reconciled with our brother. In fact, you tell us to leave our gift at the altar and go be reconciled and then come and present it. It's all too easy to just push those things aside, compartmentalize them, and just tuck them away and pretend that, hey, I'll just pretend that relationship doesn't even exist. God, we, like Aaron just saying, we want to be like you. We want to be the people that take the first steps of reconciliation, that take the first steps of initiative, like you did. When you were the wronged party, when you were the aggrieved party, when it was uh, all... The weight of guilt and wrongness was on our side. And you were perfectly innocent. Lord, still, you took the first steps. You put in in effect the plan that was for our salvation, that was for reconciling us to you. You are the one who sent your Son. You are the one who gifted us with your Spirit. Lord, our desire, our hope tonight is to imitate you. To be molded by you and changed by the acts that you've done. God, as we look at Jacob tonight, I pray each one of us would see ourselves. Would see ourselves in him. Would see us put in his position, taking the steps that that we need to take to do the thing that he's about to do. God, I pray. I pray that tonight as we look at this story, in your word, your precious word, that we would be molded by it, we'd be changed by it. And that in seeing ourselves, we'd recognize the new identity that we have in you. That there's something better for us than the way that we have chosen to live for ourselves. Even as Christians, that there's still work to be done still new higher levels to attain in conformity to you and your character. I pray all these things over each person here tonight, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight is a a special uh, sermon. We've been in Genesis for all this time now. We've been coming, you know, we went through the first part where we saw the, the reality of, of 
you know, prehistory prior to the patriarchs. You know, we saw Genesis 1 to 11. And then we went through the entirety of the Abraham cycle. And we saw uh, the high point of the Abraham cycle was, of course, what? The Akedah, the binding of Isaac, this, this sacrifice that represents... Well, really, it represents the entirety of the New Testament, doesn't it? It represents the entirety of what this is to become. What's heading our way in, in Abraham. And, and at the beginning, in as early as Genesis 22, we're already seeing the plan. The plan that's coming. The plan that is there from the beginning of the ages. And so now we have another high point. Right? We've been walking through the Jacob cycle for all this time, and now... We're at the high point of the Jacob cycle, right? We saw the high point of Abraham, and it's telling the story of Jesus even, you know, millennia before Jesus is to come. And now we're here at the high point of the Jacob cycle. And the climax of the Jacob cycle that we've been waiting for is Jacob and Esau meeting again. Now, let me remind you where we've come from, because it's all going to play out here. It's all important. Remember, where the, cycle, where the cycle of Jacob started was where? It was in utero. They were still in the womb. And their mother received a prophecy. And what was that prophecy? Two nations reside within you. Two nations are already at war in your womb. That's why this, this pregnancy is so painful. That's why you're going through so much grief. Because already, these two babies represent two nations. And they're already at war. And so, of course, we have Jacob, the deceiver. That's what his name means. He's the heel grabber. He's this deceiving person. And so we see him. He, he takes the birthright from from Esau. And of course, that's Esau's fault. The text says so explicitly. That's Esau's fault. He despises his birthright. But then it comes to the blessing. And what does Jacob do there? Well, he, he deceives his blind, possibly dying father to take the blessing for himself. This is a man who covets the blessing that, es- that is by right Esau's. There's no denying that it is Esau's blessing. It's the blessing of the firstborn. And so Jacob steals that for himself. And then even on the way out of town, it seems that Isaac passes on the promises, the promises of God to Jacob, remember? He tells him about the promise of the land, the promise of the descendants, the promise of the blessing to the nations. This blessing, this this promise that is passed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. But even beyond that, he stole even the firstborn blessing for himself. And he's sent off to find a wife. And he goes to Laban. And in Laban, he's met his match. The deceiver meets the arch deceiver. But like we talked about last week, Jacob being faced with a man like himself, seeing in himself the the tendencies, the proclivities of Laban. He decides a different path. He decides a different way. He's not going to become that man. How do we know that? Well, we know that because of what we're going to read tonight. I titled this sermon tonight, Struggling with God and Men. Because that's the quintessential story of Jacob. He is the one who struggles with God and men. And of course, there's a prophetic element to that, isn't there? Because it's not just Jacob who's like that, but the nation that's going to bear his name is like that. The prophetic piece is that the people who will be called by his name, they all do that. They are defined, as we look through the Old Testament, by struggling with God and struggling with men. That's definitional for them. Now we hear that and we tend to think, man, that sounds kind of like an awful thing, actually. And and to be fair, there are definitely times where it's pretty bad in the Old Testament to struggle with God and men. But we have to look at what's going to happen in this, this passage to see what the intention of the name is. What it means. What does it have to do with reconciliation? Why is it when we read this story, why is this weird wrestling match going to happen right in the middle of the story of reconciliation? 
Why is it going to cut the, the text in two about Jacob and Esau? And what is Jacob doing? Why does he go out of his way to meet Esau again? And in fact, when he interacts with Esau, what is he trying to accomplish? We'll see all of that tonight. Okay. Let's start. We're starting in Genesis 32, verse 1. Here's how it begins. Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. And Jacob said when he saw him, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Now remember, Jacob has just come back from Laban. The last interaction they had was meeting and creating a pillar and saying, neither of us are going to cross this boundary to do evil to each other. They are both camped in the hills of Gilead, or what would become Gilead. And at that point... Remember, the Lord shows up to Laban in a dream and says, don't speak either good or evil to Jacob. And of course, that's a warning. For if you do, judgment will come, right? Laban is afraid of that judgment. And so when him and Jacob meet, even though Laban, he even says, I could do harm to you. But the God of your fathers showed up to me and told me to not say good or evil to you. And of course, Jacob lays out his complaint. He says, you have wronged me again and again and again and again. You've changed my wages. You, you have, every time I've received, you have tried to mess it up. He says, you've wronged me. I've worked for you for 20 years. And of course, Laban, he, what can he say? Because he knows he's been warned by the Lord. So he lets them go in peace. And on the way back, they're heading back to the promised land, right? Jacob, what's he trying to do? He's trying to fulfill the promise. The Lord promised him the land of Canaan and told him to return. And so Jacob's trying to fulfill the promise. And on the way, this happens. He meets the angels of God. Now, this should kind of remind us of Jacob's ladder. Remember the dream he had when he set out, where he saw a ladder ascending to heaven. And at the top stood the Lord, and the angels were ascending and descending. With it, What's the point of this? Well, in one sense, the point of it is that God's still with Jacob. The servants of the Lord are still with him, ministering to him. And Jacob sees this and he calls this place Mahanaim, which means two camps or twin camps. There's two camps. There's his camp, he set up camp, and there's God's camp alongside him. So he names it Mahanaim. Kind of just an odd little piece. But what it's showing is that Jacob is, these steps are happening again, right? As he left and he saw this vision, now he's coming back and he's seen a vision as he's getting ready to enter the land of Canaan. And so Jacob does something and it, it seems odd to us. Remember, the last interaction he's had with his family was basically his mother saying, Run away. Run away because your brother has murderous intent. And he's going to kill you as soon as the opportunity presents itself. So when Jacob's returning to the land, what does he do? Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers he sent returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and furthermore he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Now imagine that. Imagine being Jacob. What do you think is Esau's intention? He's functionally bringing an army with him. It's time. It's time to follow through on his threat. He's coming to kill me. 
This is his, not only his brother, this is his twin brother. And he's coming to finish what, well, I can only imagine what Jacob says, what I started long ago. Why does Jacob do this? Why send messengers to him? Maybe, maybe in part he thinks he can't escape it. You know, some, somehow, some way, word's going to get to him. Maybe he just thinks he needs to preempt it. That's possible. I think Jacob has a deeper reason for doing it. I'm going to explain it as we go. But watch Jacob's attitude as we go through this passage. Look at the way he's speaking to Esau. Let's continue. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left can escape. They'll be able to run away. Hey, he can't kill all of us. Only half of us, right? If he goes for one of us, the other group will escape. So that's what he does with all that he has. Now, he's wealthy. Remember, he's coming back wealthy now. He left with nothing. But he's coming back wealthy. Of course, that's what he's going to say next. He says this prayer. Remember, he prayed a prayer when he left the land. Lord, if you will be with me, if you will protect me and bring me back to this land, you will be my God. Of course, what he's saying is, The Lord is already the God of his clan. He's saying, you'll be my personal God. You'll be the God that I worship. My God. And now he prays this because he recognizes, even in his distress, he recognizes the reality of where he's at. Maybe it's being at the the Jordan again. Maybe it's being at the river and thinking, I'm about to pass back into the land from which I left. And he just thinks about that moment. Maybe he's thinking about it. He's remembering When I left, what was my life like? And he remembers what it was like. He he remembers because he says it in his prayer. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant." For with my staff only I crossed the Jordan. And now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Jacob remembers when he prayed that prayer, be with me and bring me back to this land, and he had nothing, only his staff to cross with. And now he's become a man of wealth, a a great and prosperous man, with 11 children, 12 really, Dinah included, but 12 boys, 12 tribes already represented, only missing Benjamin at this point. For the tribes that are to come. And what's he do? He, he says, remember the promise, Lord. You promised that I would be too great to number. And if he kills all of us, that's going to be really hard to do. <laughs> Deliver me. Deliver me. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hand of his servants, even, uh, excuse, excuse me, every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on before me and put a space between the droves. And he commanded the servant in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong? And where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you 
belong. Then you shall say, These belong to your servant, Jacob. It is a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he is also behind us. So what's he do next? He says, Okay. He goes to all the other servants. He commands the second and the third, and all those who followed, saying, After this manner, in the same way, you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us, for he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. What's significant here, and it's missed in the English, what the Hebrew tells us really clearly is that Jacob is using sacrificial language. The appeasing of him, the accepting of him, the gift. The gift is an offering, like you would place on the altar. Acceptance is the word that is used when the Lord receives your offering. Jacob is making a sacrificial gesture, and it's clear that what's going on in the text, regardless of how Jacob understood it, the the author of Genesis is trying to use the language of sacrifice to explain what he's trying to do to appease his brother. So that they can be in connection again. That their war will stop and that they can be unified. If it's not clear, Jacob's trying to reconcile. He's trying to make something happen. All too often we read it and we only see this as Jacob's afraid and he's trying to to find some way to manipulate his brother into not killing him. That's not what's happening. A few slides for now, I'll give you the proof of that. But Jacob's doing something very intentional. But before he can do it, he's got to understand who he is. Who he's become. In light of Laban, in light of all the things he's been exposed to for 20 years, he's got to understand who he is. So, Jacob sent the present, it passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. So he sends it off to set up the gifts while he stays in the camp. And he arose that same night and he took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. Now he's in distress. I don't know how many of you have crossed a river, but night is not the best time to do it. Just safety-wise. He's trying to prepare. Now the Jabbok, if you know Israel's geography, the Jordan kind of cuts the land right in half, right? It cuts it from the from what is Israel is on the west, and then the east is called Transjordan. And so he's in this area called Gilead. He's in this area up north. Edom would be east of the Jordan River, if this is the Jordan River, and we'll say this is west, this is east, Edom's down here. That's where Esau is from. That's his country. Jacob is up here in the north, in Gilead area. So Edom's coming north to meet his brother. The Jabbok is an offshoot. It's a tributary off of the Jordan River that flows in, really flows into the Jordan River. And so it's right here. And so what he's doing is sending his family north across the Jabbok before his brother will meet him. To protect them, obviously. That's the intention. And it seems to be uh, clearly that it must be that he comes back because it says he's all of a sudden alone. He sends them all across the stream and, and the implication is he comes back because Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now, this is strange. What we kind of miss is that, like, what, okay, what just happened? What, he just sent all his family away, and now all of a sudden he's in a wrestling match 
which this is a struggle, by the way. This is not like just fun high school, pin them and get some points. <laughs> Wrestling. The point of this is that it's murderous. What it seems to be, if you read the story, is that Jacob is there alone and some man attacks him. And all of a sudden, Jacob is struggling for his life. He knows his life hangs in the balance. And so he's fighting for his life in the middle of the night with no idea who his assailant is. Why? Because it's dark. It's it's the middle of the night. He can't see anything. All of a sudden, he's just set upon by an attacker. So, when this strange man saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob, all of, all of a sudden this man touched the socket of his thigh and immediately dislocates Jacob's thigh, just from a touch. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled, while he struggled with him. Now, if someone can dislocate you with a touch, what's your first thought? This is supernatural. So Jacob does not understand what's going on, but he knows there's supernatural power at work. He's been wrestling, he's been fighting for his life, and all of a sudden, this guy touches him and he's, his thigh is out of joint. That's supernatural power. Jacob's probably thinking, why did this guy just kill me outright? He knows the powers there. And this man, after dislocating his thigh, he says, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now this is interesting. This is probably the sign that Jacob knows there's something supernatural at work. It seems an odd thing to say. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And so this strange man said to Jacob, What is your name? And he said, Yaakov, Jacob. Now this is key. Because what's about to happen is a name change. Name change are immensely significant in the Old Testament. If you have your name changed, what is it signifying? A change of identity. It's, it's signifying that your identity is different. So when he says his name, Jacob, what's communicated about him? Names are already powerful. Names are already significant for identity just generally. But in the context of a name change, it's highly significant. What does he say my name is? It's deceiver. The man wrestling with him asks his name and he says, my name is Deceiver. And the man said, your name shall no longer be Yaakov, Deceiver, but Yisrael, Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel comes from from the idea of God strives or God fights. The implication with the explanation obviously being that this person strives with God. That's not a light term. That's not like a... We, we inherently uh, spiritualize it. We inherently are like, oh, like it's like someone can wrestle in prayer and you know, like we use those terms. No, no. This man was just almost killed because he was in a wrestling match for his life. This is immensely personal and physical. <laughs> What's even more significant is that this man says that Jacob prevailed. The man dislocated his hip with a touch. How did Jacob prevail? And what about this blessing? Why, why is Jacob like, bless me to this stranger? Well, one thing we know about Jacob from the very beginning is that he covets the blessing. He covets blessing. 
It's always been what he sought. But what's different this time? For once, Jacob is striving for the blessing outright, straightforward, openly. Not because he's subtle or deceptive or cunning. Not because he's tricking his old blind father. Not because he's come up with the master plan. He's literally fighting for it. Who was Jacob when we met him? When we first were introduced to him, who was he? A quiet man who dwelled in tents. Now he's wrestling for the blessing. He's fighting for it. With no ulterior motive. Just because he longs to be blessed. So Jacob asked the man and said, Please tell me your name. But the man said, Why is it that you ask my name? And the man blessed him there. And we think, okay, did Jacob not really understand what was going on? Well, clearly he did, because what does he do next? So Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face. Peniel is the face of God. Yet my life has been preserved. Jacob recognizes that he just wrestled with God. And that he was blessed by God. And somehow, in the midst of this darkness, the idea of maybe letting go of, of the, you know, letting go of me because it's dawn, it kind of makes you think of that, that idea in the scriptures of no one can see the Lord face to face and live. You know, no one, no one can see him. And we see that with Moses too, right? He's put in the cleft of the rock and he doesn't see him. It, it could be that if dawn breaks and he sees him, he's going to die. The Lord's protecting him. But in the middle of the night, he realizes this is God that I've wrestled with and somehow I survived. That identity change from the deceiver to the one who strives with God and men and prevails. Think about the weight of that change. Imagine when you've identified literally by name as the liar, as the deceiver, as the one who supplants others, grabs your brother's heel, and pull him back and take his place. Now you are the one who, who wins, the victorious one. Now the sun rose upon Jacob just as he crossed over Penuel and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip which is on the socket of the thigh because he, the man, touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. I love this little I don't know, a little aside here. Because there's something really significant about it. And maybe I don't have time to get into the deep theological weight of it, but I'll just tell you what I think about it as it relates to disability, as it relates to, to struggle and pain physically or mentally or the spots at which we are weakest. I think about E, about my son Eli. I think about his, his condition. I think about those things. I think about myself too. It says that the tradition becomes they don't eat the sinew of the hip because Jacob's hip was dislocated. And why is that important? Well, it's important because the man touched him there. What's the theological significance of that? Well, this theological significance is that sometimes at the spots where we feel are our weakest points are the exact places where God's touched us. And often we view it with disdain. How could the Lord do this to me? 
How could he have stricken me in this way? How could he have disabled me? How could, have, how could he let this happen? And we forget to recognize that sometimes those spots are the exact spot where God actually touched us. Where the power and the majesty of God at work happened. And because of that, the sons of Israel, it says, to this day they don't eat the sacred spot where Jacob was touched by God. It's powerful. But let's continue. Chapter 33, verse 1. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and he looked. And behold, Esau was coming. And 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and two maids. He put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last. There's no doubt Jacob's got his favorites. <laughs> we know that. But where's Jacob going to land? Where's he going to end up? Jacob the deceiver. Jacob the deceiver, I think, puts himself behind Rachel and Joseph. He's going to have to get them all if he's going to get to me. He's not Jacob anymore. He's Israel. But he himself passed on ahead of them, and he bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. He fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. One of the most beautiful verses in Scripture, I think. Who would have expected that of Esau? thought his brother was coming with murderous intent when in actuality he came with a royal welcome for Jacob the 400 men were not an army to kill him but a welcoming party to bring him back to the land and we really see the character of Esau. He's got some terrible character flaws, no doubt. And even the New Testament recognizes that. But Esau chooses peace, and that's noble. He chooses peace with his brother, and he receives him. They're reconciled. What part does Jacob play in that? What is Jacob doing that influences the reconciliation? I think we miss it. It'll be in this next section. Sorry, two sections from now. He lifted his eyes, Esau, and saw the women and children. And Esau said, Who are these with you? So Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. So the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah, likewise, she came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And Jacob said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, no, please, 
If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God. And you have received me favorably. Remember the sacrificial language? Jacob saying, seeing you and the reception with which you received me was like seeing God. And Jacob did just see God. The power of reconciliation in humanity is to see the power of God at work. To see his face. Jacob equates the two. That to see reconciliation among brothers is like seeing the face of God. And that's what I prayed at the beginning of our service. Thank God he did not leave us with just reconciled relationship with him alone and left us in our misery amongst ourselves. No, he even paid for reconciliation between and between humanity. That we too would not be left in the depravity and hate and destruction of our relationships, but that he would work to reconcile even them. Okay. Here's the answer about what Jacob has done. <clears throat> Jacob says, verse 11, Please take my gift, which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. Thus Jacob urged Esau and he took it. This verse, I think, has a mistranslation. I think it's significant. Now, I, I don't want to steer you wrong. The, the translation works. It's, a, it's an okay translation of the word. But it, you miss the power of the whole account if you don't translate this word with what it should be translated with. You miss all that Jacob has done. Please take my gift. I brought you a present, Esau. Burha. It's not gift. Take my blessing. What is Jacob doing? He's returning the blessing that he stole. Remember the prophecy? Remember the the blessing that Isaac offered? What was it to Jacob? May all your mother's sons bow down before you, Jacob. Would you be Lord over them all? What has Jacob been doing the whole time he's interacted with Esau? I am your servant. You are my Lord. To see your face is to see the face of God. And what did he do when he met him? bowed down to the ground seven times before him. And he brought his wives and they all bowed down before him. And he brought his children and they all bowed down before him. What is Jacob doing? How do we know he's Israel? Because he's returning the blessing that he's told. He doesn't need it anymore. He said, I received this blessing through deception and evil and I went about it the wrong way and I return it to you, Esau. Because I've found my own blessing. I fought with God for it. I wrestled with him. I, I strived for it. I didn't do it. I didn't deceive anyone. I, didn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't cunning. I didn't make a plan like Laban would have. And like I would have. If I used to be, the, if I was still the same man I used to be. No, I fought for it. I strove for it. So have your blessing back, Esau. 
we miss the restitution of Jacob. There's no doubt. The response of Esau is beautiful. It's powerful. I love it. That's one of, like I told you, I think it's one of the most beautiful lines in Scripture to see these two brothers who literally, definitionally, prophetically, their destiny is to be at war. The Lord said it to Rebekah. And here we see peace. But without taking the blessing, you miss that Jacob's doing a work of restitution. He's doing his part to make the reconciliation happen. And why would Jacob do that? Why would he send messengers? Because this was his intention. To make things right with his brother who he knew he had wronged. Jacob's a hero. Jacob's a man of God. Changed. He is changed by accepting the Lord as his personal God. His heart has changed. His character has changed. And God has given him a new identity. The one who strives with God and men and prevails. Not through power or might or deception or subtlety or cunning, but by accepting the very grace that God has to offer. Think about that fight again. Who had the power to end it at any moment they chose? The one who could dislocate a socket with a touch. Jacob understands the reality of grace in that moment. So Esau said, let us take our journey and go and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me, and if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, please let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Sukkot, which means booths or tents. Even after the reconciliation, Jacob is still single-minded in purpose. And what's his purpose? To get back to the land of promise. He's had this wonderful reconciliation with his brother, but his brother invites him down to the Transjordan. Remember what I talked about being east of the Jordan? Edom's down here. Where's the land of Canaan? The promised land It's to the west of the Jordan. Even despite how beautiful this moment is, Jacob is single-minded. I need to fulfill the promise. Go back to the land that the Lord has promised to give me and my descendants. So that I could be a blessing to the nations. Our descendants could be as numerous as the stars and the sand. So Jacob heads back to go into the land. That's where we're going to leave off tonight. And we'll look at chapter 34, a dark, dark story. Next week, the rape of Dinah. Significant story for Jacob and his descendants, specifically for the tribes of of Simeon and Levi, specifically. But here... In this moment, I want to stop at this passage and think about the weight of that moment. 
Reconciliation is so powerful and so significant as an act of what God does. Reconciliation is an act in which the ultimate wronged party, the only party maybe ever to could claim I was 100% wronged in, in this case. <laughs> I hold zero guilt, I am completely innocent, and I have done nothing wrong. In which that party, God himself, the only one who may be able to claim that, still, still took the initiative to reconcile relationship. He made the plan, even though he was the wronged one. He enacted it, even though he was the wronged one. He paid for it, even though he was the wronged one. And he came to dwell among us and in us, even though he was the wronged one. He did all of that himself. We merely responded. We cannot claim to have made reconciliation work with God. He enacted it. Why reconciliation among brothers, among among humans is so significant is because in it, we imitate God. We choose to be like Him, often even when we are the ones wronged. And most of the time, we have zero way to claim that we are 100% innocent of what happened. We have some part, not always, but almost always, we have... We have some role in it, some part, some level of guilt to lay at our feet, some blame. But one thing I think we miss when we look at this story and the significance of it, because again, we have no time frame. Well, we, we have time frames that are written in the text, but we don't think about them because we just read, like I said, it's like high point to high point to high point to high point. But there's huge gaps of time between these moments. And reconciliation is so significant, it's important to me to note that we can neither treat it flippantly and, and, and brazenly as if it's so easy to do, and we shouldn't treat it like it's impossible to do. And you can fall off on both sides of that. You know, the one who thinks reconciliation is impossible is the person who... They, they, like, whatever. Like, forget that relationship. I'll just tuck it away and forget it existed. Who cares? Like, just let it die. It doesn't matter. And they just write it off. That's not the work of God. He took the most seemingly impossible reconciliation that would ever happen. A way to pay for the astronomical, incomprehensible weight of human sin. Every one of us that's ever existed and ever will exist. The weight of every wrong thing we have ever done. How do you reconcile that? God made a way. We have to think in God's terms. And we have to trust the God who makes the impossible possible. We have to believe that there's a chance for reconciliation. We have to believe it. That's one way we can fall off is to not even believe. But I think there's another way. And this way, I think, is the way people... We tend to gravitate this way. And we need to recognize the reality of this, too. And I think the story tells us beautifully about it, even though we may miss it. Sometimes we think it's cheap. We think reconciliation is cheap and easy and swift to come. How long did Jacob wait, thinking his brother had murderous intent to kill him? Twenty years. Seven years for Leah, seven years for Rachel, and six years for wages. Twenty years Jacob and Esau waited for reconciliation. And as far as we know, I mean, to be fair, 
All we have is Scripture, right? So we can't know. There's more to their lives than is recorded in Scripture. But as far as we know, after that moment of reconciliation between Jacob and Esau, they never see each other again. That's it. That's their moment. There's not much time that they could. I mean, it's possible, of course. But what happens next? What happens next is Jacob settles in the land for a short period, and then what happens? Well, he goes to Egypt. And we know he doesn't come back from that. And out Esau is making a trip down to Egypt to be enslaved with his brother. This is their moment. And sometimes we think reconciliation means everything is perfect now. We're just perfect and everything's great and we're going to live together all the time and see each other and there's, it's all solved. Not according to this passage. And not only that, what we also miss is the fact that it cost Jacob something. It cost him a lot to make reconciliation work. Not only the gifts he presented, but the humility he had to show. The, the way he went and bowed down before his brother. Offered him the blessing back. He kept calling him my Lord and he, I'm your servant. I, there is a, he, it took a whole identity change. It took the Lord giving him a new name for it to become real. These are not cheap things. The work of reconciliation is costly. If you don't recognize that it's going to be costly in your own life, look at what it cost Jesus for reconciliation. So my goal is to tell you, don't fall off on either end. Don't don't fall into the pit of despair that it's never going to happen. It's impossible. Also recognize the work and the weight and the gravity of the act It's going to cost something immense. It's going to be work. And it's not going to come in your timing. It's not next week. And we solved the hatred of of twin brothers at war with each other. It's 20 years in the making. And the end product is probably not everything Esau and Jacob wanted to see. But they were at peace. We know that peace ultimately, it, it only comes when this whole thing wraps up. When we're truly at peace. We recognize that. But there is an earthly peace, an earthly shalom that can happen amongst people. Even people who have deeply, deeply wronged each other. That can happen. There is a sense of laying it in God's hands, but there's also a sense of deep work deep sacrifice required for it to happen. And that's my prayer for you tonight. You see both of those things to be true. God is the God of reconciliation. And it's going to cost you something. But it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile because to reconcile is to be like Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're not at the place where you can feel you're ready to reconcile. Maybe there's some specific relationship you have in your head where either you or they are are not ready to to be in that place. Maybe you need a name change. I assume not literally, but maybe. I wouldn't put it past God. Sometimes he needs to do things. Clearly, we saw it. But at least metaphorically, you know, figuratively, spiritually, maybe you need a new identity. Maybe the things you've clung to about who you are, whether that's things you think are really great about yourself, or in Jacob's case, the darkness in your heart that you've held on to and have felt has defined you all your life. Maybe what you need to do is find a moment to just wrestle. 
be blessed to hear a new name. God's in the work. He's in the business of reconciliation. The fundamental work God has done, the fundamental work that Jesus accomplished is reconciliation. God and man brought back into relationship with each other. So we've got to be about it too. We've got to be about our Father's business. We've got to do the work of our God. I hope tonight when you look at Jacob, see the darkness of where the man began, you're encouraged. Just like Jacob can change, just like Jacob can get a new identity, just like he can reconcile, just like he can restitute, he can offer restitution for what he's done, we can't do. I'm going to turn it over to Tyler.